already start recording. Um, how are you doing? Um, I'm well. How are you? I'm good. It's humid in here. Yeah, it is. It's like we're in a cave. It's kind of cool and fitting, I guess. Yeah, I <laughs> think um, it's a perfect incubator for genius insight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so today we're going to be talking um, with someone who I've known for a long time and someone who kind of was integral to maybe us wanting to start this project. Um, yeah. his, his name is Ken Gerhard. He's a Texas-based cryptozoologist. Um, and yeah, we wanted to talk to him about the state of cryptozoology in Texas today. Um, when talking to Ken, we were really primarily interested in talking about his personal methodologies um, because he definitely takes a very specific approach that we think is unique within the cryptozoological community. Um, we want to talk a little bit about specific cryptids we're interested in as well as some of the other approaches and theories people have for the existence of cryptids. Ken's kind of bread and butter, one of the main cryptids that he's devoted his life to is the big bird. Um, yeah. <laughs> the the big bird. The big bird. It's ambiguous how big it is, but... Uh, Some say f uh, it stands four feet tall with yeah. uh, eyes the size of silver dollars. Um, others, others say it's bigger. <laughs> um, there have been many sightings that we're going to talk to Ken a little bit about later on. Um, but I think it's important to note that there is a context for sightings like this um pretty much every culture in one sh way shape or form has a version of this big bird um the harpy a lot of Na native american cultures have the thunderbird um in texas and in mexico there's the legend of la lechuza which is a shape-shifting uh woman who turns into a giant owl um some say the some people who have seen the big bird in San Antonio have described it as having sort of a humanoid face. Um, others' descriptions kind of relate more to an impossibly large California condor. Yeah, and Texas is sort of, I don't know if it's a hotbed for cryptid activity, but it it kind of feels like it. I don't know, there's a lot of lore um, around these parts. and. People have become interested in the Texas Bigfoot. I've heard a lot about Texas Bigfoot sightings, and there's a good... Yeah. We, we are referencing um, Ken's book, Monsters of Texas, which he writes about some of the sightings in. Um, and I'm interested in this, the Texas Bigfoot, because Bigfoot typically exists and is told of being in the PNW. Um, and the Pacific Northwest landscape kind of seems like it would lend itself more to an undiscovered creature. Um, you know, it has all of that that lush forestry, but Texas has a very wide range of terrain. So I suppose that we could also be a good host for Bigfoot. Um, but one might feel that he has less places to hide. Yeah. He's more exposed. Yeah. In the episode art, I did, um, a little drawing of some one's Bigfoot skull that they found, which I do believe is just a fossilized rock. Um, <laughs> but it is, it's compelling because it does look like a little face. Um, and I thought it was interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't know. People, B Bigfoot has like 
a beautiful following. Um, yeah, there's um, one character who I think we bring up later on. Um, he goes by the name of Bear County Bigfoot, um, and he does a lot of boots on the ground work in Bear County, um, kind of going through forested areas and looking at potential Bigfoot habitats and structures, um, you know, dwellings that a Bigfoot might have recently left behind and kind of analyzing them with a sharp eye. Yeah, we got to get in contact with the Bear County Bigfoot at some point, I think. I think we're one degree of separation <laughs> from Bear County Bigfoot, so I don't think it should be too hard. Um, if you're listening, uh, sir, we would love to have you on our podcast. Yeah, and as we've talked about, and we'll certainly talk about more, Texas also has its fair share of UFO sightings. We have the Chupacabra. There are a lot of different, um, and like the Donkey Lady, things like that, that are more, I guess, like kind of specters more than cryptids. Um, yeah. And uh, some some believe that they're kind of synonymous yeah, phenomena. Yeah, and it kind of seems like over time people have started to view cryptids in a similar way to how they view UFOs. Um, and I was reading a little bit about the idea of reality tunnels, which is a term popularized by LSD enthusiast and Winona writer's <laughs> godfather, <laughs> Timothy Leary, as well as author of Prometheus Rising, Robert Anton Wilson, um, and yeah, I don't, I, when we talk to Ken, he talks a little bit about how in cryptozoology today, a lot of people are sort of less interested in physical evidence and more interested in the idea of parallel dimensions, time slips, open portals, etc. Um, those things have kind of made their way back into the discussion. And I don't know, this type of thinking kind of requires a strong personal decision to suspend reality and to believe that we're dealing with something that might not exist in what we would consider our reality um, in our terrestrial and natural experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ken, Ken is, is someone who is, would consider himself of the old guard of cryptozoology, cryptozoological research, kind of in the vein of, um, Tom Slick, a real, a real, um, kind of naturalist, uh, explorer. Um, and, and at the conferences that he often frequents, he's kind of one of the only representatives of this way of thinking yeah yeah definitely more more and more um and you'll hear a little bit more about that later on yeah um and i think i think the whole idea of like parallel universes and time slips and alternate dimensions and stuff is just really kind of uninteresting to me um it's just not very compelling because i don't really like focusing on things that i'll just never like, you know, I don't know. If there are other dimensions out there, it's not really my problem. It, um, there's too many other things going on here that you have to concern yourself with. So you, yeah, exactly. You hate everything everywhere all at once. You're going to take a hard stance. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it. Um, but <laughs> uh, when I was reading about this, I was thinking about something that Thomas Aquinas wrote, which might be kind of a strange connection to make. But he talks about how, like, the end goal... Um, of the human action necessitates the supernatural because it, the end goal is some form of union. Um, and he talks about how the supernatural is sort of just the conclusion to the natural. And then when I was reading that, I started to think about something that Bataille wrote in the inner experience where he does a critique of dogmatic servitude and mysticism. And he kind of writes about how he doesn't really like the term mysticism because he thinks that it's too narrow of a definition. Um, I think the goal for him was sort of to, unify the mystic and the natural experience. And he has a little quote that I wanted to read. He says, 
I wanted experience to lead where it would, not to lead it to some end point given in advance. And I say at once that it leads to no harbor, but to a place of bewilderment, of nonsense. I wanted non-knowledge to be its principle. I like that line of thinking because I think that that sort of opens things up. You know, it's not, we're not looking for creatures from another dimension. We're looking for something that might just be an extension of what we already know. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. And it does sort of expand the possibilities of the natural world. um, And it helps kind of provide a framework for the paranormal in general, I think. Well, maybe not directly informed by it. I don't think Gerhard's approach would necessarily reject this line of thinking. He would consider his own approach more scientific than not, and maybe credits this as the reason why he's often chosen as a representative on different programs and such um, for the cryptozoological community. Rather than looking for creatures that might be visiting from another realm, Gerhard seems to believe that he's looking for creatures from our realm that possibly haven't been documented yet. Um, In a previous interview I did with him, he said, the cryptids that I view as the most credible, if they exist, I view as simply unknown animals. And while I have a healthy respect for nature and all living things, I think that a lot of the perception that people have that these cryptids are monsters, I think that's a social phenomenon. Yeah, I think this social phenomena aspect is just as interesting as the sort of hopeful pursuit of cryptids, you know, like, Why is there a need for a community monster? Why does it appear in the folklore? You know, what are the sociological, psychological, and even theological implications for these experiences? What do these desires mean, you know? I met Ken a couple years ago while I was doing some unrelated reporting, um, and since he's sort of become my personal cryptozoologist, (laughs) he's become somebody in my life who I can text when I have a burning cryptozoological (laughs) question, if I see something in the news that seems curious to me, and I think he can provide some clarity, I'll hit him up. And one of those times was when, I don't know if any of you remember, I think it was about a year and a half ago, there was the UAO, the Unidentified Amarillo (laughs) Object, and it was like a, a, a grainy, like, ring camera yeah us photo of a our notes say the little freak behind the fence at the amarillo zoo <laughs> it seemed to be some sort of werewolf monster it kind of took the internet by storm people loved he looked like um one of the little foxes from the sonic video games he certainly did <laughs> he sure did a uh, kind of you know bipedal uh bipedal fox type yeah uh but but not not quite in the you know, more common American furry uh, per- permutation of that um, phenotype. So I texted Ken what he made of it, and he said, uh, it's always nice to hear from you. I do want to start out with that. He said he likes hearing from me. Um, and then he said, I've been shown this image repeatedly since it showed up. If it's not fabricated, I believe it's an optical illusion, perhaps two canids facing away from the camera one behind the other, and the resulting superimposition looks like one creature standing on its hind legs. Though even to the casual observer, the posture must look unusual, with what appears to be the middle part of the body curved backwards. But who knows? Shown, not showing. So I think this really demonstrates his sort of kind of practical approach to the field. Yeah, it was a beautiful analysis of the photo. Yeah, and we'll definitely drop it 
um, in the post uh, when this episode goes up so you can see it if you haven't. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think cryptozoology is interesting. I think there are a lot of different ways to approach it. And, you know, it's clear and it'll become more evident as we discuss specific examples that it is something that um, is necessary in Texas because we do have certain All sorts of lingering creatures and you know whether you're you fall into the camp of the interdimensional alien bigfoot ape uh <laughs> or you, you, you know you're somebody who believes that there's still something there are things out there in the world that we don't know that have yet to be discovered yeah um, I want to see the bones personally. <laughs> you want to see, you, you need, you need some, um, you need, you need to see it in the fossil record. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I feel that way too. And I think that you all will appreciate Ken's um, approach to that because he, he feels the exact same way. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Roll the tape. <laughs> Hello. 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 Hey, Ken. Uh, Sorry about the slight delay. We were uh, rushing around over here. Um, But oh my god, thank you so much for for joining us. This is a huge treat. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Are we doing video too or just audio? We're just doing audio if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um, Do I sound okay? Yeah, you sound crystal clear. Yeah, you sound really good. Are you on a mic or are you just in front of your computer? Uh, well, I have like an an add-on mic to my computer. It's like a little USB condenser that I pop in. So nice. I'm sitting in front of my computer, but it sounds really good. Okay, cool. Um, well, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, how are you doing? It's been a while since since I've seen you or heard from you. Um, are you are you on the road right now? Or are you in San Antonio? I'm in San Antonio at the moment, but I've been uh, travel season has kind of been kicking up over the last few weeks. So I've been out of town a few times and I've got uh, some events coming up in the next couple of months. So um, no, things have been going well. Uh, Just, you know, busy with a lot of different projects. And um, how about you? uh, Yeah, it's been, uh, I'm trying to think, was it the UFO festival? Was that the last time I saw you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that's, um, I'm with, I don't know if uh, I connected those dots, but I'm with Faith, my friend oh, who's yeah. also at the yeah. at the UFO festival. Um, hey, Faith. Hello. Good talking to you. Hope you've yeah, been well. Uh, same here. Good to speak to you again. Um, awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess, I guess we can get kind of started here. Um, I want to introduce you and correct me if I get anything wrong or if you want to add anything here, but, um, Ken Gerhardt is a Texas-based cryptozoologist. Um, he's pretty well known. He's been on a lot of different TV and radio programs. You might have heard him on Coast to Coast. You might have, you know, seen him on the History Channel. Um, you might have seen him on Ancient Aliens. Is that you've been on Ancient Aliens? Mm-hmm. A couple times. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Um, and you may have seen some of his um, print work. He's written um, a handful of books. How many? How many? books have you published six six okay um and that includes monsters of texas which i actually 
I gifted Faith a copy of it for Christmas last year. Oh, and you thought that was the one that I, yeah, <laughs> that I have I bought. it before yeah. me now. I'm familiar with that one. I'm familiar with the Big Bird, um, Big Bird book. Yeah, those are my first two. Okay, cool. Um, and, and, and the most pertinent to Texas, obviously. Yeah, so. totally. Um, and then you also published a book about Bigfoot, correct? Yes, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. Nice. Um, yeah, that that's awesome. Um, we really, really enjoyed what we've read of um, Monsters of Texas. Um, and we, we really want to kind of um, sh- uh, structure the interview today around the big bird, if that's cool with you. Yeah, whatever you guys want to talk about. Awesome. It's your um, show. Well, I'm cool with whatever. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you're also, so you're also, you do like some research for the 14 zoological center is that the center for 40 in zoology in england it's based in england and it's a worldwide organization of researchers so yeah i'm pretty close to all those guys uh well i think camille i know has interviewed you before um for um i'm a little bit less familiar i guess with just your background so i think maybe we can start off talking about uh you know how you got into this why you moved to san antonio specifically i know that you had some some uh specific cryptozoological goals when you did that Mm -hmm. um so yeah if you want to just talk a little bit about yourself and sort of give some context for the yeah i know a little bit but like yeah i want to maybe talk about like how you fell into this um you know kind of kind of like the origin story like how you first kind of began researching cryptids uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so, of course, many people ask me why or how I got into the field of cryptozoology. Uh, for obvious reasons, it's kind of an unusual pursuit. Um, what I tell people is that it's been a lifelong passion of mine, at least since I was about eight or nine years old. And um, at that time, um, I was uh, my father was a professor of forestry, PhD. So I grew up in kind of a scientific background or household with, you know, uh, a lot of time spent in the outdoors. Uh, My mother was a travel agent, very adventurous. uh, And um, as a kid growing up, I loved uh, animals and all types of creepy crawlies. Uh, My first pet was a small alligator called a caiman. And I used to go out in the woods and collect snakes and salamanders. And so I loved all kinds of animals, creatures. Uh, and I also love monster movies, you know, Godzilla, King Kong, uh, Creature of the Black Lagoon. So when I first heard about cryptozoology, and it was really through the form of a TV show I saw when I was about eight or nine years old, man, it was just like a uh, a light went on because it embodied all of the things that I was interested in. Uh, Bigfoot was conceivably a monster, a real living monster. And it was yeah. also a, a, an animal, I thought, you know, something, some kind of creature running around in the woods. So... Uh, so I just immersed myself from a young age, um, but my mother was very influential and she was a travel agent, as I said, and I got to travel with her all over the world growing up. We camped along the Amazon River in South America, uh, oh Machu God. Picchu, the Galapagos Islands, Australian desert, Africa, Asia. Uh, so I've traveled to 26 different countries and she was always supportive of my interest in the subject and would often tell me stories about the Yeti or Abominable Snowman and the Mothman of West Virginia and these different things. 
And uh, things kind of culminated when I was 15 years old. Uh, my mother arranged for my father and myself to vacation at Loch Ness in Scotland, of course, famous for the, the Loch Ness monster. And that's when I attempted my first field research. Um, at age 15, I had a little eight millimeter movie camera and I would camp yeah. out by the <laughs> lake and interview people. And so that just kind of started it for me. I certainly never planned to make it a career. I've just been very blessed. Yeah. And a number of years ago, I began writing books and got on some TV shows and uh, it's been a wild ride. I've really enjoyed it. As far as my move to Texas, um, in 2006, I was wrapping up a music career that had lasted 20 years and I was kind of burned out and I wanted to pursue the cryptozoology oh, really? more. I didn't know you had a music career before um, cryptozoology. Yeah. Were you yeah, in a band? Sent, what kind I of sang, band was it? Um, I sang in a few bands. Um, it was mostly like electronic, what we called at that time, industrial music. So it was kind of like heavy electronic music with guitars, kind of like Nine Inch Nails or uh, Ministry, Rob Zombie, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And then I did some slightly more ambient electro dance music. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time for 20 years, but I was just at that point, I was just burned out. Uh, you know, I obviously didn't hit it. I mean, we did okay. We opened up for Motley Crue and I got to work with uh, some some pretty cool music, you know, well-known musicians and things. But, you know, I just uh, was just burned out. So I- uh, It's hard being on the road and oh, like, yeah. kind of living that life. I mean, Motley Crue, they're like known for being- kind of oh, yeah. like <laughs> well, high I, octane, you know, they like, have handlers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I I'm kind of, uh, I'm OCD. And so I was kind of like the one that ultimately a lot of the things fell onto my shoulders at times. And, uh, yeah. musicians can, can be obviously a, a kind of flamboyant and unpredictable group of people. So it's like, Jesus, you know, yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons I burned out is I was essentially the one that was kind of keeping it together for a long time but um yeah it's hard to be ocd when everyone else is more like acdc yes thank you <laughs> uh no thank that's you. so cool i didn't know i didn't know that that was part of um your origin yeah. story. that's really and cool then, and actually my my trademark hat uh came about more so when i was in the band and singing uh and touring i was wearing it on stage so it was kind of something i kept when i started okay doing that makes sense yeah dude your hat's awesome for yeah for people who are unfamiliar with ken and his work he has this like very it's is it leather it's like a leather kind of mm -hmm. cowboy hat shape with like a skull a silver skull on the front am i describing it right yeah yeah that's, okay that sounds, sounds accurate um so yeah so i was living in houston at that time but i knew that san antonio had a lot of potential in terms of my research because uh there were some Bigfoot sightings around the city, not a ton, but some that were pretty well known. There was uh, this mysterious animal known as the Chupacabra, which was starting to be, you know, the first one in the United States was shot down near Elmendorf. And then um, there was also, you know, there were many reports of big birds or thunderbirds, which was a, yeah. kind of a, a interest of mine. I was writing a book at the time on these reports of giant winged creatures in the San Antonio area and extending down through South Texas to the Rio Grande Valley. So, so was, all of those things played an influence in terms of me wanting to, to come to San Antonio. Plus I'd been here before and I just liked the city. So, um, uh, so yeah, I moved here in 2006 and I've been here ever since. Wow. 
yeah i in our previous conversation we kind of talked about um some of those big bird sightings um that were happening and it's and, and if memory serves there were quite a few happening um kind of around the time that you moved moved here like more maybe in the 2004 2005 mm-hmm. um era can you talk a little bit about um what the big bird is or how it's most commonly described and maybe like talk about some of those sightings that um you've researched yes absolutely um well first of course we have to acknowledge that many native american tribes across north america had legends or traditions of what they called thunderbirds uh monstrous birds the beating of their wings sounded like thunder or created thunder um, they were very prevalent, of course, in many stories, Native American stories, and also they were often depicted on totem poles at the tops of totem poles and in pictographs and things. Um, different tribes had different names for them. To the Lakota, they were the Wakanyan. To the Pawnee, the Huhuk. Uh, to the Cherokee, the Tlanoa. Other names like Arpomala, Ganesi. Um, but anyways, all these things basically meant these giant birds. So we have a foundation in terms of the Native American traditions that date back centuries. So I wanted to kind of get that out of the way first. Yeah. Now, in modern times, there have been reports of monster-sized birds with wingspans estimated to be anywhere from 12 or 15 to 20 feet across, just monstrous birds. Um, the reports are very consistent in terms of the descriptions, usually a dark-colored a solid colored plumage, black, dark charcoal, gray, or sometimes brown, hooked beak, and that's important diagnostically when you're looking at birds, Um, so kind of a raptor. And um, in late 1975, a bunch of sightings of giant birds started down near Robstown, Corpus Christi area, and then they quickly migrated down to the Rio Grande Valley places around uh, Harlingen, Brownsville, Raymondville, San Benito, McAllen. So all those towns had, and you know, and this made a lot of the newspapers. It became pretty yeah. good news. I was going to say, I, mm-hmm. when I was um, working at a newspaper, I was able to go into some of the newspaper archives and I found a lot of those um, reports of like school teachers and, you know, people like that kind of describing these encounters that they had. It was really interesting. Yeah, not being allowed to talk about it too. Yeah. 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 In fact, when I first moved here, I went to the main library downtown and, and uh, I don't have checked on this in years, but in the upper on the upstairs area where they have the archival materials, they actually had a folder that said big bird that was full of newspaper articles and things that, that I was able to, to resource. Um, so anyways, but yeah, there was a famous sighting in San Antonio February 24th, 1976, involving three school teachers on the South Side. That one was in the both of the major newspapers of the time, the Express News and the Light, San Antonio Light newspaper, yeah. which is no longer around. So yeah, that was all pretty notable. Uh, sightings kind of trailed off after that, in ter- at least in terms of the media. But I have, as you've indicated, I've interviewed dozens of eyewitnesses throughout South Texas through the years. Uh, there were a lot of reports when I first moved here in the early 2000s. Haven't gotten too many really recent ones, uh, a couple in 2013, and then in 2016, a report from New Braunfels. 
Um, but, you know, we can imagine that a lot of people might not report these things if they see them. They yeah. Might, might be worried about who to report it to or the reputation because it sounds pretty remarkable. But um, the name Big Bird was actually invented by the newspapers. And yes, it is a play on the Sesame Street. <laughs> it just sounded cool, I guess. Yeah, it, it, there's <laughs> alliteration. It's accessible. People kind of have an image in their mind when they when they hear it. Yeah. Um, there was even a hit song. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm being generous by calling it a hit. Uh, but... <laughs> But there was a, a Tejano musician, uh, the Taco Kid, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his first and last name, Wally Taco Kid, maybe Gonzalez, but uh, he wrote a song about the big bird, okay. a Tejano song around that time too, which uh, I can send you a copy of the uh, a graphic yeah. of the album cover. It's pretty cool. So. Oh my God. Yeah, I would love, <laughs> I'm going to be looking this up right after the interview. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I imagine, I imagine like you have some people are very reticent to report sightings that kind of break with their conception of like reality. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, approach this sort of thing very skeptically um, and mm -hmm. are more inclined to kind of call themselves, you know, insane um, than like maybe give credence to the idea that there are things in the world that we don't understand. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious, when you interview eyewitnesses, do you feel like the trend among them is that they generally have had maybe experiences before and this is something that they pay a lot of attention to, even seek out, or do you feel like it's a lot of people who just saw something unexplained in their everyday life and don't really know how to process it without, I guess, contacting someone who might know more? Well, that's a good question. I guess I take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and I certainly am not in the habit of questioning people's integrity. Um, so I, I, you know, you have to imagine that all of these cryptids, and that's, of course, what I refer to the, the subjects that I investigate are known as cryptids. Yeah. Um, I think all cryptids are pretty much cases of composite identity, meaning that you have different influences coming together. So, for example there very well may be a mysterious and remarkable animal at the root of the accounts. And then once you have a sense of uh, mass hysteria, sometimes like in the big bird flap that we're talking about from 1976, then certainly people are looking out for something like that. And then you might have cases of misidentification where people are just seeing birds that maybe are, un you know, known species uh, like storks and things. And then you also, unfortunately, have some people that are probably making up stories to get attention. That is a <laughs> sign yeah. of a human trait. And then there are also people that are perhaps, for whatever reason, just mistaken or uh, not to be unkind, but different levels of delusion, which yeah. I think even totally sane people are, are capable of having delusions and, and things that are kind of yeah. extraordinary. So, um, but I think that when I interview eyewitnesses, you know, actually it's more problematic for me, from my perspective, at least when they begin by telling me, I've always been interested in UFOs and Bigfoot and ghosts right. and all that stuff. And then I saw this remarkable creature, as opposed to some people I interview that, you know, from the top will tell me, I've, I've had no interest in anything weird or unexplained, you know, um, the, but yeah. this, but I did see this thing and I, I, you know, so that, 
that's a level of credibility there in terms of, you know, because we all have different levels of confirmation bias and certainly Absolutely. someone that's more biased towards the unexplained might be, uh, you know, more willing to, let's say, fab, spin a yarn. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. A, a yeah. More polite, <laughs> that's polite. polite. Yeah. But I think the mind is a powerful thing and we can, you know, subconsciously or not will ourselves to kind of to certain experiences. Um, but that sure. that's really interesting. Um, sure. And I have interviewed people in other realms, not just big birds, but experiencers that claim that they've had a lifelong of things that have happened to them. And, you know, there are enough of those people that I've interviewed over the years to lead me to believe that if they're not, if this is not a psychological or a cultural phenomenon, that perhaps it is possible that there are people that have a proclivity or an ability yeah. to perceive things or, you know, experience things that others don't. So, yeah. Um, spe speaking of that, like, you know, greater access, I'm wondering, cause I, I mean, it's so interesting to me, like, you know, thinking about like, okay, what, what are cryptids? Are they, you know, animals that haven't been, you know, cataloged by traditional science? Are they, you know, beings that kind of exist on different planes? I, I'm wondering, I guess, how you conceive of, of cryptids in general and like, or at least like, what are some possible explanations for these phenomena that people experience? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm a, admittedly, I'm a traditional sort of old school cryptozoologist with the emphasis on zoologist. Okay. So the term cryptid was actually created as well as the term cryptozoology and the concept was created by two zoologists, uh, scientists back in starting in the 1950s and 60s, a guy named Dr. Bernard Huvelmans, Belgian zoologist, and also a guy named Ivan Terence Sanderson, who was a Scottish uh, zoologist, naturalist, and author. And those guys kind of coined the term. So for me, traditionally, a cryptid is an undiscovered animal. That was the whole concept of cryptozoology. Are there species out there? And I can give you a pretty strong argument why it's possible, at least, that there are undiscovered species out there, like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Big Bird, uh, things called Black Panthers, big cats that people see. Um, those are kind of some of the main kind of marquee cryptids. Now, the term right. has a the term has evolved because it's you know become part of the common vernacular, and through social media in particular, that term has now evolved in terms of people. Many people now viewing cryptids is also including things like the Mothman, the Jersey Devil, the uh, Slenderman, Skinwalkers, yeah. Wendigos, and all these things. What's what's the difference? Yeah, some of listeners might be asking. Well, the difference is that the first group I listed. All of those are zoologically viable. In other words, things that looked like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Thunderbirds, Black Panthers actually do or did exist from, and we know that from the fossil record. Things like yeah. werewolves and flying humanoids and reptile people and things like that, Slender Man, none of those have any basis in zoology. Yeah, they there's no exist. material record. And I guess that's where it diverges from mm -hmm. like traditional science. Yeah. So, you know, but I accept that, you know, that's kind of just the way it is now, you know, a lot of people consider yeah. alien, 
aliens are cryptids and, and whatever. Yeah. So I don't view all of those things as cryptids. I still investigate some of those reports. I find them interesting, uh, but I kind of just see them as strange creatures, you know, things that, that don't fit into the paradigm of, of what, you know, anything that we know. So I'm interested in, I guess the distinction between like, um, the way that people talk about like Slenderman and even aliens, a lot of times the psychological background of it is that it's some sort of projection of fear, trauma, mm. stuff like that. But it mm. seems like the psychological background that people would assume for a cryptid, like a zoological cryptid, like Bigfoot or something like that is different. And it's not really associated with some sort of negative projection. What do you, what do you think the distinction of that is? Well, you, you, that's a fair point, but you have different perspectives. And again, you know, all of us are different in terms of our, you know, background, our experiences, our perspective of the world and what's going on around us. So um, some people, you know, many people these days that I talk to think that Bigfoot is not an undiscovered animal like I do, but think it is some kind of interdimensional being from another density and reality yeah, that yeah. crosses over and they've adorned it with all these abilities that it can <laughs> close and speak telepathically to us and all that. I've never seen any evidence of that. Yeah. Um, so I guess it, it you know, it just kind of depends on the individual in terms of how they view a particular cryptid. Now you're right. There are some cryptids like the Mothman, for example, where you had this tragic bridge collapse uh, a year after it started appearing up near Point Pleasant, West Virginia, 46 people died tragically in that bridge collapse. And to this day, many people associate the Mothman with tragedy and uh, almost like a some kind of an, a harbinger or omen yeah. of some cataclysmic event. And there are other cryptids too that are probably have that negative connotation. Um, skinwalkers, which again, I don't consider that concept to be a, a cryptid per se, but many people now are interested in the skinwalkers, the Yinigloche, which is a kind of a Navajo concept of the shape-shifting uh, shaman or whatever. Yeah. Um, that is considered to be so, you know, such a negative subject that most Navajo people will not even discuss it. You know, if you bring up, hey, tell me about skinwalkers, they just get to walk yeah, away yeah. because it's, it's bad juju to even bring the mm -hmm. subject up. So yeah, there is that kind of divergence of different perspectives but um so yeah some cryptids i kind of kind of view now this is interesting and we're going way back here in in terms of a kind of a cultural perspective but the word monster or monstrum from latin basically means warning so there were many different stories old stories of monsters things like sea monsters and things and it was considered to be even centuries ago if you saw something like that that it was a, you know, a harbinger or, or a bad omen, something bad was going to happen to you, death or illness or whatever. So, um, so yeah. yeah, so again, you have different, different, I think you have to take all these different topics or cryptids on a case by case basis and, and trying to make sense of them and, and interpret them and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it certainly seems like there's a basis and I think it's, like a human nature thing of kind of like ascribing these other meanings to kind of encounters that don't quite make sense. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really interesting about like the context of cryptozoology. Um, but I, but I also really like appreciate and, 
you know, I'm like fascinated by like the more scientific approach to things. And I'm, I'm curious, like what, what would you say is the current breakdown in like the world of cryptozoology of like people who are more in your camp of like research who kind of, you know, feel the way you do and like have a similar approach to people who kind of, you know, primarily investigate kind of more of the liminal and perhaps like paranormal elements of, of some of these cases like yeah, yeah what's the what's the breakdown there well it's hard to say i feel like i'm kind of sadly part of a dying breed of of cryptozoology it seems like there's kind of a new spiritualist movement going on in the world it, at least in, in terms of dealing with a lot of these unexplained phenomenon which kind of lends people to lean more towards kind of cosmic explanations for them yeah but i did a for example i did a bigfoot conference uh in washington state uh earlier this year and there was a, a all of all of us who were sitting on the panel were basically in that same camp and were referred to as apers people that consider bigfoot for example to be a, an undiscovered hominin or ape. yeah which is and this, awesome because i mean we both have like studied anthropology and kind of like have that background so it's okay. i think that's really cool so for perspective the panel was dr jeff meldrum who's a physical anthropologist from idaho state who endorses the reality of bigfoot based on the footprint evidence mm. there's a female anthropologist named kathy strain who's worked with many different indigenous tribes in north america and has written about the native american traditions of bigfoot uh, there was me, you know, more of a zoological perspective. And then there were a couple other two or three other investigators up there, but all of us were on that same page in terms of, okay, we're talking about an undiscovered hominin. That's the most likely scenario with regard to Bigfoot. I similarly, I will appear at Bigfoot conferences around the country where I'm kind of the odd man out where all the other yeah. speakers there are people who claim that they have communicated with Bigfoot telepathically and that they see them all the time and that they, they call yeah. them forest, forest people, and it's just a completely different. Now, everyone at the conference is interested in Bigfoot, and that's kind of the common ground that we, we share. But um, Right. Um, so, like yeah. Completely so, different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was is. interesting. The, the convention that I met you at, the UFO convention, I feel like kind of had that same split um, where it seemed like so much of it was sort of like playing on the campy aspects of the whole UFO culture and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, um, some of the speakers were like sort of leaning into that. And then some of them seemed like very frustrated that, you know, their research was being taken um, in that direction. So it's interesting to see how these two different things sort of live amongst each other. Um, yeah. Kind of, okay. kind of end up informing each other, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a strict scientific way to look at things, which is what I try to adhere to. And then yeah. there are people that are more kind of spiritual and they look at things in terms of energy and, uh, you know, other realms and planes and dimensions and, you know, things like yeah. that. So um, none of us really know. I mean, all of yeah. us are speculating, but speaking as a strictly from a scientific perspective, if you look at any cryptid, it really comes down to the data or the evidence. And then looking at whatever data is available or whatever evidence, you form a hypothesis based on the most likely, the most probable thing. And certainly anyone can argue that anything's possible, you know, and that, that may be true. But, uh, you know, 
what's probable based on the data and the evidence that we've collected so far. And that's, I think that's the, the scientific way to look at this stuff. Totally. Um, at least in terms of the big bird or the thunderbird or whatever kind of name you, you want to call it, um, what is, what does the material evidence look like? Um, I, I guess I'm curious, like what you're, what, what you're dealing with there. Um, and like, I'm also wondering, you know, like, where does that, why, why is it still, why is traditional science like reticent to like kind of, kind of accept, accept that kind of branch of cryptozoology? Like I get, or at least, or are they like, what, what does that relationship look like? And what is, what is the material evidence looking like? Right. Well, well, in terms of Big Bird, um, really all we have to this point is anecdotal evidence. I mean, you have, as I mentioned, the Native American legends, you have the modern eyewitness accounts, but there is no really, there's no film that's really convincing. There was a, a film that was shot in 1977 up in Illinois that shows two big birds, but it's kind of inconclusive. Um, and there is an alleged missing photograph that these supposedly these ranchers shot this giant winged creature in Arizona in the 1800s, but no one's been able to find that photograph. So that's again, just an anecdote. Um, so really, you know, the big bird is probably one of the weaker arguments you would make in terms of a cryptid because all you have are eyewitness accounts and legends. Um, yeah. What I can say is that having compiled all of the modern sightings into a database, there are at least consistencies in terms of the physical descriptions and behaviors and things like that, that are just, you know, put out there. So um, to me, that is slightly compelling because at least you have that, you know, that level of consistency to draw on, but there's a, you know, what I tell people is obviously we haven't yet found a giant feather, a giant egg nest, nothing physical like that, a giant massive bird of pile of bird crap on someone's car, you know, none of those (laughs) things, have been documented. So you can make a stronger case for something like Bigfoot or Sasquatch, where you have physical trace evidence in the Patterson Gimlin film and other things like that. So, um, so I think that that's probably answers your second question, which is why traditional scientists are reticent to get involved is because they really require, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and they really require some level of evidence that, that we're not able to provide it to this point. Um, you know, I would love nothing more to, than to bring that physical evidence in and, and, and show it to a scientist. But um, and then the other thing, of course, is, you know, more political in terms of, uh, you know, like I mentioned, Dr. Jeff Meldrum earlier, who is a professor at Idaho State. Well, he has managed to maintain his, you know, his tenure at that, that university, but he's also gotten a lot of criticism from his peers his colleagues at the university and so forth. And he's really had to deal with a lot of that backlash because it's viewed as kind of a a pseudoscience, obviously. And um, people that become involved with that type of thing, at least in the academic and the scientific world tend to face, um, you know, losing their standing, uh, losing grants and funding, um, you know, those types of things. So it's very tricky. Um, so I can, I can understand why, why most scientists don't want to get involved. Now, I will say this, there, there is on some levels, there perhaps is a movement um, 
for things like, for example, Bigfoot, because you've had Jane Goodall come out in recent years and say, well, it's possible Bigfoot does exist. And uh, George Schaller, who's a gorilla expert. And, um, you know, I work as a volunteer educator at the San Antonio Zoo, which is a scientifically accredited organization. Yeah. It maintains three accreditations. They've actually had me talk about cryptozoology or do presentations at the zoo, which is a pretty big deal because now you've got a scientifically accredited organization that says, yeah, it's okay. I mean, it, you know, it's entertaining too. So go ahead and talk about this stuff. So that's what kind of stuff have you done for the zoo in uh, terms of, in terms of cryptozoology? I mean, that's where we met actually. Oh really? Yeah. I met Ken at the zoo. I think I was just oh, cool. doing like a regular news story on like an installation that they had. Yeah, they did a dragon installation. Yeah. And they had oh, to come yeah. talk at that. Um, oh. I think last year during Fiesta, they did a chupacabra kind of thing. And uh, they obviously have a mock chupacabra up at the zoo. So they had me doing lectures on that. Uh, I think this year I was talking about, or this last year I was talking about just general cryptozoology and the big bird and things like that. So um, different topics. Yeah. I... You know, I, it must be, does it ever get like frustrating that like people come at your work with like certain biases against, against it? Or like, does it get frustrating like pursuing something that feels so elusive at times? Like, I guess, I, I guess I'm curious about your, your mindset and your approach when you're, when you're researching, like, um, where, how do you, I guess, like, where, where are you operating from in that sense? Um, well, no, I'd say I don't get frustrated because I feel like I'm one of perhaps several generations that are, are going to be required to, to come up with real answers. I mean, yeah. I mentioned earlier that this research cryptozoology started in the 50s. And so those were a lot of the pioneers, some of my heroes, those people like passed Tom away. Slick. Tom Slick. He's yep. awesome. And then there was a second generation of investigators that came after that. And I guess I'm part of the third generation. And there's a fourth generation coming up under me of young investigators and researchers that I'm, you know, trying to trying to support. So, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a gosh, I feel so dumb. A relay race, you know, where you're handing off yeah, the, no, but the yeah. to the next person to go, okay. You know, I did the best I could. Now you go, you know, so um, so I don't look at it in terms of that. I think these things will take a lot of time to, to come up with definitive answers. I don't really the skeptics don't bother me so much. I have some friends actually that are pretty hardcore skeptics that actually uh, make their living, you know, criticizing people like me. They, <laughs> they have skeptical magazines and websites and things where they question everything. And I think that's an important part of the process that's yeah again that's science is you have to have peer review and other people that are questioning and challenging your your hypotheses and conclusions so um you know people think uh, i'm a little bit uh, perhaps people out there that aren't interested in the subject matter might think that all of us are a little bit you know uh, esoteric in this field i suppose but um uh yeah you can't kind of can't let that really get to you you know i mean if, if yeah. you're obsessed well maybe obsessed is a strong word but very passionate about the subject matter uh then you're not going to let any of that kind of stuff bother you you're just going to kind of forge ahead so yeah you can't let the haters get to you and, and i would also like to point out and this maybe i'm tooting my horn a little bit here but 
I think one of the reasons I'm on a lot of TV shows and that I, I get a lot of people at my lectures and things is that people tell me continuously that I add a level of credibility to the field because, you know, I don't get up there and, uh, uh, you know, sort of preach at people or, or you know, kind of go yeah. off on these tangents. I just, I try to keep it real in terms of like, again, the scientific process and, and have, and I maintain some level of skepticism myself, you know, as much as possible. Yeah. And that, and that's like why I think your work is like important and why I think like why I wanted to have you on. I think your approach is really, you know, it, it's really interesting and, and you take such care to kind of like with your research. Um, and, you know, I, I think like in a field that can, that is increasingly kind of like, you know, sp split or there's people who are kind of taking it to, to different heights, maybe in like a metaphysical way. It, it's like interesting to like hear that kind of grounded perspective um, for sure. Appreciate um, that, thank you. Are there any specific um, like expeditions or I don't know, any? is there anything that you're preparing for now? Um, I mean, I've got some Bigfoot things coming up in the next couple months in Oklahoma and Tennessee, uh, nothing too major. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, uh, quickly about an expedition I did a uh, year before last during that summer, I went with a team up to Northern California and we were searching for this legendary giant salamander or there's a giant yeah. salamanders that yeah. were described as being five to nine feet long. Not very well known. Tom Slick searched for them back in the 19th, late 1950s. Yeah. Um, but there have been sightings reports from this area of the Trinity National Forest. So we went up there and did an expedition for a few days. And we didn't unfortunately find any unknown giant salamanders. But uh, it was a good exercise in terms of, you know, we had a biologist on the team and we used a lot of technologies, underwater cameras. And I actually consulted with the a uh, conservation expert at the San Antonio Zoo, uh, a guy named Dante, who's a pretty brilliant field researcher about, because he's searched for uh, known giant salamanders in China and Japan, where they have these big oh, five damn. foot. So he told me basically how to conduct a survey. And so, yeah, it was a very, it was more of a scientific uh, cryptid search. Yeah, you know, I think uh, compared to a lot of, a lot of the research you see going on these days. So um uh, so that was a good exercise and hopefully that will turn into other similar, you know, I'm very interested, for example, in the, something called the ivory billed woodpecker. Uh, oh, what's that? Campyphilus principalis, also known as the God bird. It is a giant, the largest species of known woodpecker, um, which supposedly went extinct in the 1930s and forties. Uh, but there have been ongoing controversial sightings and videos since that time. And, um, it was primarily in the southern United States, so uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, East Texas, Florida, places like that. But you know, there, there's there's some evidence, tantalizing evidence, that these giant birds might still be out there, even though they've been declared to be extinct. Yeah, and science doesn't accept them as ornithologists. Uh, Cornell University was very active in in recent years trying to find de definitive evidence. So things like that kind of interest me more so these days as opposed to looking for you know like a werewolf which you know just i don't feel like i don't feel yeah. like there's a lot you know very strong potential for me to go out to any area 
where even people have claimed they've seen all these werewolves and, and find one. So, um, but things like Bigfoot lake monsters and Thunderbirds and things like that do definitely yeah. interest me. Well, especially like with your, you know, background growing up, like traveling to all these corners and like experience being inspired by like diversity in species, like you, you kind of have, it, it, it makes sense that that kind of informs your yeah. approach now. I wanted to ask about that because um, you mentioned you traveled so much when you were a kid. Are there any like experiences or sightings that you had during those travels that you feel like you understand more in retrospect now with your, your knowledge of cryptozoology? Well, I've never had any sightings of, of any cryptids or anything like that, but I think what it does what it did for me is kind of reinforce that there are vast areas of our planet that are still pretty uninhabited and yeah. uh, lots of wilderness area out there. Um, when you've traveled to some places like the Amazon uh, and even in recent years, I've done expeditions down to central America that, you know, the, the vast jungles there, um, you know, Australia, obviously there's, you know, there's a very low population base on sort of the outer fringes and the coastal areas. But once you get to the interior, it's like pretty vast. Um, you know, I, I did a TV show about Alaska back in 2015. And of course you're talking about six to 700,000 square miles of just fairly uninhabited, you know? So, yeah. I mean, all of that, I think that's the thing that really gave me perspective in terms of, okay, it is possible that there could be undiscovered species in some of these areas. And that's kind of reinforced by the fact that there are still hundreds of new species that are described every year by zoologists, most of them being very small, admittedly. Uh, but every few years, there is a large species, something that weighs, you know, a couple hundred, few hundred pounds that's discovered in some jungle area of, you know, East Asia or Africa yeah. or, or South America, you know, so, um, so yeah, I think there's the, the potential for discovery is definitely there. That makes sense. So, so with the big bird specifically, like the reason, one of the main reasons why you decided to move down to this part of the country, because the sightings were, mm -hmm. you know, so pervasive, where do you have your own theories about like where their nesting area is like where, like is where are they if they're if they're out there where do you think that they kind of reside most of the time um to be kind of in this area so frequently yeah that's a that's a great question and the kind of critical thinking that i, that I encourage um so i have a maps on my walls here where i document the different sighting locations and at least on the map of texas and the u.s you can clearly see at least to my eye a type, a type of inferred migration pattern so these things appear the sightings tend to be in clustered areas that follow different trajectories now because there are so many sightings in south texas i think the most likely thing is that these giant birds if they exist would live in some of the remote mountainous areas of northern mexico which mm. you have the sierra madre uh, occidental and oriental you have two two ranges of northern mexico um, i have collected some reports from mexico but obviously it's more difficult uh in terms of of gathering sightings from from 
Mexico, but uh, some of those, I've, I've been to some of those mountain ranges in, in Northern Mexico and they're, you know, again, very remote, very uninhabited. Um, so, you know, that's one possibility I think is that these yeah. giant birds nest or, or generally are in those areas of mountainous Northern Mexico. And that occasionally they stray or migrate up into across the border into South Texas or maybe other parts of the U S but I, I don't know. It's really speculation. That makes sense. No, that's super interesting. Um, do you do you think it's possible, like, possible that like because the sightings have happened in these like clusters, do you think it was possible that there was like a break from some sort of lab, for example, like the Southwest Research Institute or something? Like there was a creature that like escaped or something like I like that is a known species. Um, mm. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there are like alternative like explanations or if there's any like um, evidence for that or. Well, I'm, again, are we talking about big bird here or just cryptids in general? I know you mentioned, I think you mentioned in the monsters of Texas book, the Southwest research Institute mm -hmm. um, during a, a Bigfoot sighting saying that people were speculating that maybe it was in a released yeah. monkey or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are definitely primates that are used at the Southwest. I shouldn't say used. Maybe that sounds, <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. They, they do have primates. They keep maintain primates at the Southwest biomedical research facility. And it's not impossible. Of course, that some of those things could escape from time to time. I'm not sure whether something like that, and I'm we're probably talking about like rhesus monkeys and yeah, macaque, yeah. macaques and things like that, that any of those would be um, mistaken for a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. In terms of the flying cryptids, the largest known birds in North America are like the the, the California condor, Gymnotypes yeah. californianus, which has a nine foot wingspan there's only about 500 of those birds in existence. And I think they're pretty well monitored and tracked by uh, naturalists in that part of the, you know, California and Utah and some of those areas. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if uh, an escaped condor, certainly I think flying over Texas, sure. Some people, if they saw something like that would assume that it was an unknown bird or something like that. So it's, it's possible, but um you know, I'm certainly not an advocate of a lot of conspiracy theories and, um, you know, involving like, you know, labs and experimentations and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's, I guess it's not impossible that those things, uh, but, you know, what this kind of reminds me of is that um, there's like a, uh, a widespread kind of mythology where a lot of places where I've been to investigate reports of you know, unknown creatures, cryptids. I'll hear a story about a crashed circus train, that there was a train of circus oh animals God. that crashed years ago and things escaped. And I've heard that in different places all over the country. And it's it seems to be just kind of a a legend that has migrated mm. across, yeah. you know, but that but I think that's it's kind of a, a fallback or a fail-safe story that people use yeah. for, you know, why is this weird creature out here? Well, the circus train crashed and this thing escaped. Mm. But yeah. uh, it's an easy cop out, so, I guess. To like so 
blame. Yeah. So I'm thinking, and again, not trying to be disingenuous, but maybe this modern, these modern theories, and many people do talk about that, that there's labs where they're doing genetic experimentation or military experiments. It almost seems to be like a modern version of that circus train crash. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, there are all these weird creatures that are kind of, they're not supposed to be get out and they do. And then, you know, that's why they're here. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just um, right. more interested in, in terms of like natural selection and the fossil record and the potential for some of these things. I mean, like, yeah, you know, big bird, big birds did exist in North America up until the end of the Pleistocene about 10 or 11,000 years ago, there were birds in California, Nevada, and Florida I think that's the main place they found the fossils called teratorns that did have 15 to 24 yeah. wingspans and yeah. hooked beaks. And they probably look just like what people are describing. So to me, that's more of a, a dot connecting as opposed to saying that it could be something that's, you know, escaped from, from a facility, but who knows? Yeah. That's definitely, you know, an important perspective. And like, I, I think, you know, your branch of cryptozoology is interesting because it does seem to have this like dialogue with, with the past and like, you know, kind of, you know, explores like a part of reality that is since, you know, maybe completely or partially dissipated or, you know, maybe it hasn't, you know, fully. And we've just like, developed a new way of understanding things that like limits our our view of the things that maybe have slipped through the cracks um so it, i think that's why it's so interesting to think about partially um oh yeah it's it's fascinating looking at these things from all all di different angles and uh my favorite quote of the past year actually which i think might be relevant to a lot of these things that we're talking about i i had dinner with a neuroscientist about a year ago. And he was just like casually interested in the Bigfoot phenomenon, but we went out to dinner with some other people and he was telling me or explain, trying to explain to me, um, you know, that after decades of research on the human brain, neuroscientists still really have no idea how it works. So, I mean, they can oh, talk yeah? about some of the physical functions in terms of how memories are formed by certain proteins being linked when, at an exact moment, things like that. But, you know, the, really the, the mind is, the human mind is such a mystery still that, you know, we have to factor that in, I think, to particularly when we're talking about these really far out cryptid accounts and cases that, that there may be a component there in terms of now, now what that is, uh, you know, I, I haven't the, the slightest clue, but, <laughs> you know, we can't be, I guess, a hundred percent sure of anything that we think we've seen or experienced. I guess that's the the message there. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I think we're approaching about an hour, so we can wrap this up a little bit. Is there anything um, you feel like you want to end off on? Or, I mean, I think I think we were definitely very interested in just your process specifically, um, how you go about this and what you're looking towards. So I think it's interesting that you're focusing, I guess I, I just looked up while you're talking about it, the woodpecker. Um, and that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that they were, I guess, presumed extinct. Um, that woodpecker is kind of like what 
what the classic woodpecker looks like in like cartoons and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's, yeah. Uh, I don't know. How have, how have your goals changed? Do you yeah, think after, over, over the course of your career in cryptozoology? Like, what are you, what do you, um, I don't know, see for your, the future as you feel like you're, you're, you know, handing the torch off. I think my mission from this point on is to maintain and advocate as much of the scientific process into the field, as well as encourage researchers to remain, you know, agnostic, objective, and sort of use critical thinking. And, and yeah, uh, I'm my main interest now with all the cryptids is strictly in physical evidence. I still get a lot of accounts from people. I certainly want to interview them and and glean as much information as I can from the, from the accounts. I really have very little interest these days in photographs or videos or audio recordings, which people send me all the time, but they're always inconclusive. And even if, you know, obviously, even if we had a, a pretty convincing video, it would still be questionable in terms of, well, you know, Photoshop, CGI, AI, yeah. you know, all these ways that people can generate images. So my main interest now is, is actually in physical evidence. Uh, I want people, when they tell me they've had Bigfoot activity on their property, I tell them to send me if they think they can find a hair associated with a sighting or poop, yeah. dropping, scat, you know, send me some bones, teeth, blood. Uh, yeah. eDNA e is a new thing, uh, an emerging thing, uh, environmental DNA. And I have, I'm working with a guy that's, uh, you know, using that tech, you know, technology. So, you know, that's kind of the, the point we're at after, after many decades of research, I really want to see some of these things proven or at least completely debunked. And I think physical evidence is the best way to do that. And to your point about the ivory billed woodpecker, it may not be as romantic as something like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness monster, but yeah. if, if it were to be rediscovered, then it would certainly jolt the scientific world enough to where they would perhaps have to take notice and say, Oh, wow. Okay. This thing is, actually mm -hmm. still out there so what else yeah for sure um yeah i recently i recently followed an account on instagram called bear county bigfoot are you familiar with that guy <laughs> i'm uh, coincidentally wearing my shiny new bear county bigfoot t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> no way dude that's awesome yeah that's that's really cool yeah he yeah. seems to i mean i i haven't dive deep but he seems to be like looking for yeah he's, he's, he's out there he's out there beating the bush and looking for evidence which is what any researcher should be doing you know if they really uh like i said there have been a few bigfoot sightings around the, the city i've interviewed some witnesses but you know it's certainly not not like the pacific northwest or anywhere yeah. like that they seem to be pretty fleeting so we're not as densely wooded as other parts of the country correct yeah i don't know if this is the habitat now if Bigfoots or Sasquatches are moving through Bear County. I think that they are transient individuals that are basically just moving from point A to point B or following food sources or something. So I, yeah. I don't see it as a viable spot for a, a breeding population or anything like that, but it's still interesting, still worth looking into. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. Is your, what was, did you mention the name of your band? Is that music still <laughs> online or is it like completely wiped? Um, I think some of it is on Spotify or maybe some of the streaming services. Um, I have a band called Bozo Porno Circus. Okay. I had a band called Bamboo Crisis. 
and nice. called Flowers and Machines. And I think I've seen at least two or three of those on Spotify from time to time. So uh, pe- people may be able to. And I, I actually recorded a new song a couple years ago that I put on my YouTube channel just for fun. It's uh, not something I do very frequently anymore. But uh, yeah, there are probably a few, few songs floating there. around out there. I yeah. just ask because um, sometimes I put like an intro <laughs> or outro song. And if, you know, with your permission, if, if there was a song... Oh, that you thought would be cool to play you out <laughs> with um i could totally do that but um yeah i don't know if anything would really be appropriate for this uh, <laughs> i mean fair, towards, fair enough towards, towards the end of the band i started i did write a song called monsters are real and i wrote a song <laughs> about the chupacabra but awesome. they're, they're you know they're kind of i don't know uh i don't know if they really match the tone of <laughs> that's funny <laughs> of our so- here so Beautiful, smooth transition into your new career. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I mean, yeah, I'll I'll definitely poke around. Um, Yeah, I guess the last thing I want to ask you, um, are you familiar with the Archives of the Impossible Conference at Rice University? No, I don't think I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think you would. I think you'd be interested in it. We're actually planning a trip to go um, in May, and it's um, essentially a conference of people within academia who kind of research um kind of more paranormal sort of things um yeah i think a lot of it is um like specifically ufology and stuff um but it's interesting because it is you know a large academic event composed of a lot of people who i think have the approach that you value and that you're trying to uh spread which is just you know, taking seriously the science behind it and trying to um, treat these stories with respect and with with real consideration. Well, thank you for the tip. Do you happen to know when in May? Or I guess I can research it. What's it called? <laughs> yeah, it's called Archives of the Impossible. I can send you a it's link. Yeah, um, I know there's too. like one guy who like has done stuff on Skinwalker Ranch. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and stuff like that. Um, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely curious. interested. Definitely interested. I spent a lot of time at the uh, Rice Library when I was living in Houston. So. Oh yeah, that's awesome. They have some cool stuff there. Totally. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to mention that you didn't say earlier? Or? No, I can't think of anything. You guys did a, an excellent job. Some great oh, questions and uh, thank you. Good discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate having you on. Thank you for for allowing us to pick your brain about these things totally absolutely okay well uh good luck and um yeah please send me a link when you guys are ready to to uh put this episode out there i'll be happy to share it on social media oh my god awesome thank you yeah i think um probably next week is when it's going to come out we're recording a little bit early um but i'll keep you posted sounds good thanks ken all right thanks ken all right thank you ladies yeah you too enjoy your evening talk soon well that was ken this has been another beautiful episode of texas overture right i'm faith i'm camille thanks for listening until next time bye bye